Hello and welcome to Perusia Podcast. Your host today is Shabal Raish, and our guest is Dr. Scott Hahn, who will be speaking with us about his book, The Decline and Fall of Sacred Scripture. This episode of Perusia Podcast was recorded online with a live audience in Perusia World. To be part of the live online audience during all of our recordings, and to interact in the live member-only Q&A sessions that follow, please join us in Perusia World by visiting perusiamedia.com and clicking on Perusia World for all the information on how to join. Perusia Podcast is produced in partnership with EWTN Asia Pacific and Voice of Charity Radio Australia. Hello and welcome to a Perusia podcast. I'm Shabarish, your host, and I'm joined with a good friend, um, Dr. Scott Hahn from uh, Steubenville right now, and he's written a brand new book, uh, The Decline and Fall of Sacred Scripture. Here it is right here, and we're going to talk a bit about that uh, today. Hello, uh, Dr. Hahn, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Charvel, and I want to thank Matthew for inviting me to participate in this virtual community and conversation. It was a lovely thing to hear all of your greetings. I, I wanted to wait until you were over to uh, say hello to you all back. Um, but from here, it would be good evening. I understand that uh, we're quite a, a far distance. And so uh, it's great to be with you. Good morning. Good day. Good evening. God bless you all. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, it is uh, unique as we're recording this podcast. Uh, we are. We also have a live audience, if you like, via the Zoom group, and and we have people from all over the world, and it's inside exclusively inside of our brand new uh, social media platform called Perusia World, and this is a unique uh, experience um, for those members because they don't only get to watch uh, these interviews, but they get to interact with the guests. So we're very excited about that. Um, what we'll do as normal is have our normal uh, interview now, um, and this is available as a podcast. But of course, those who want to join in on the action, they can go to our website, perusiamedia.com, and join in at Perusia World. Sign up, it's free. And then we have an exclusive little group meet and greet at the end of these interviews. So you get to interact with the guest uh, very briefly. So it's, it's a great honor. Um, it's, it's, you've been busy. Uh, this is now the uh, third book in the last uh, um, month we've talked about in less than 12 months. Um, and it's been great uh, reading this, and it reminds me, I'm, I'm holding two books in my hand, Dr. Hahn, not only this one, which you've released, but this is a summary of this big boy, <laughs> um, Politicizing the Bible, and I remember you handed this to me when I was in Steubenville, you were hesitant to give me this book, <laughs> um, but I'm glad you did, because I flicked through it, and it it really does give us a background to the problem in biblical scholarship we have uh, today, and it roots back over 500 years ago. Very, very interesting. Um, I'd like to talk a bit about um, why you then went from that politicizing the Bible, the big text, to this sort of summary version. And if you can touch on, I guess, the reasons why you, you felt the need of this book to be released. Sure. Well, first of all, again, thank you, Charvel, for inviting me, and it's wonderful to support Arusia, uh worldwide. Um, it really feels like a fraternal bond that unites us. You've visited us. I have not yet visited you, but look forward to that. And so whenever an invitation comes from down under and it has your name on it, I, I, I tell my team, this is a must. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, I'm glad you pointed out this big boy because I have my copy here. This book came out about eight years ago over 600 pages long, and they're small type pages. And so it could have easily been over 800 and other publishers looked at it and said that it would be closer to nine. And so I'm grateful for the collaboration that went into the big boy, politicizing the Bible, the roots of historical criticism and the secularization of scripture, 1300 to 1700. Now, when Dr. Ben Weicker and I worked on this project, we were doing it in response to an invitation that had been issued generally by then Cardinal Ratzinger going all the way back more than 30 years. When Cardinal Ratzinger came to New York City in 1988 to deliver his famous Erasmus address on the crisis 
the crisis in biblical interpretation. He was joined by hundreds of uh, guests in the audience, but also by more than a dozen famous biblical scholars, Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish. And they had a colloquium, and the conversation was transcribed and published as part of the book, Crisis in Biblical Interpretation. So in the U.S., back around 1988, this was a major event. And why? Because Cardinal Ratzinger was pointing out that the use of historical criticism had been developed for the purpose of desupernaturalizing sacred scripture, that the historical critical methods, source, form, and redaction, could basically not ever validate anything that was miraculous. It couldn't validate anything that was prophetic fulfillment, prophecy, then it happens and it's fulfilled. It could also not really collaborate anything of God speaking to his people in the present on the basis of what had happened in the past. And so the fact that it's only historical past, the fact that it's only human and not divine, the fact that it's only natural and not supernatural, and the fact that it is a historical criticism is basically an academic method that um, brackets anything that would even claim to be divine, supernatural, miraculous. And so it is an academic method that is designed to develop scholarly hypotheses, and it never, it never rises beyond the level of the hypothetical, because you have interpretive hypotheses that are tested, but in the complete and total absence of certainty. And this is the word of God. It's not just the word of humans. It is the word of God in the present. It's not just a historical narrative about the past. But even if it was just the historical narrative of past events, even that is subverted by historical criticism. The historicity of the patriarchs, the historicity of the exodus, uh, exodus of Israel out of Egypt, the historicity of the conquest, all of these things are debunked. And so for people to claim to be scientific and objective and neutral, and at the same time admit candidly that the methods they have developed are natural but not capable of acknowledging or recognizing the supernatural. I, I compare that to a music critic who claims to be more objective than all of his colleagues because he's tone deaf, you know, or an art critic who's in the gallery observing the art and claims to be more scientific because he's colorblind. He has no bias. He has no prejudice. And you're like, no, you're actually disqualified because you can't read scripture on its own terms. And so if you're looking at the four gospels, you recognize that the evangelists were not only good writers, which even agnostic scholars recognize, they're not only reliable witnesses in terms of their historical testimony, they were theologians, they were men of prayer, they were contemplatives. So to read their testimony devoid of faith, again, is a certain kind of hermeneutical colorblindness or being tone deaf. And so the, the idea that Rudolf Bultmann or Martin de Balius were applying pseudo-scientific methods to sacred scripture, all the while claiming to be more truly scientific than anybody in the church's living tradition. This, he said, is a critique of criticism, that the critics are using criticism uncritically, and we've got to apply their own methods to their own works in order to show the limitations. On the one hand, historical criticism does offer some limited insights. On the other hand, it has virtually unlimited abuses and it fails to recognize its own inherent limitations. But for the most part, everybody who read Cardinal Ratzinger's address, and it's been widely circulated and much discussed for decades, you would not get the sense from that address that historical criticism went back much further than the 1800s. And so generally speaking, when people talk about, well, what is it that caused this way of reading scripture to bring it about that, well, the, the title says it all, the decline and fall of sacred scripture, or how did the Bible become a secular book? 
Well, usually that's traced back to the mid to late 1700s. What Dr. Weicker and I did in politicizing the Bible, that big boy that you mentioned, was to take it all the way back to the 1300s to show that Marsilius of Padua, as well as William of Ockham, were politicizing the Bible in a way that was deliberate and conscious in order to advance a philosophical, but especially a political agenda that would have a secularizing effect, that the church is really only concerned about souls making it to heaven, but when it comes to our bodies and real life on earth, that has to do more with the king, the prince, the temporal rulers who run the temporal order, the secular order. And when you see how they're really out to subvert the Pope and how they're out to advance the work of King Ludwig, uh, you, you begin to realize that, my goodness, this started a lot sooner than we thought, much earlier. And when you trace this all the way into the 1400s with Machiavelli and the Prince, it's surprising to see how much of his work is drawing from Scripture explicitly. Well, he had to because that's what people saw as their authority. And then when we take a closer look at Martin Luther and realize that he's desacramentalizing the life of Christianity, but he's also secularizing scripture, sola scriptura, and, and basically reading scripture apart from the tradition, apart from the magisterium. One century after Luther, you realize, you know, it's sort of like putting Humpty Dumpty back together again or squeezing toothpaste back into the tube because what had been a spiritual unity of all of these peoples that was called Christendom now has become Europe. And you see these emergent secular nation states who are backing Luther and Calvin and the Protestants because the net effect of what they're doing with scripture is going to empower the state over the church, the university over the seminary, and the academic uh, elite over the clergy in general. And so this whole idea of secularizing society, de-sacramentalizing the Christian life, all of this is something that you can plot historically, philosophically, chronologically, from the 13 through the 14 and the 1500s, through the Enlightenment and rationalism in the 1600s, through the political revolutions with the influence of John Locke in the 1700s, all the way into the 1800s. But we had to stop somewhere. And so what we did was to look at the roots of historical criticism and the secularization of scripture from 1300 to 1700, and we just put it out there, never realizing that this would get such a positive response from scholars in the academy from every part of the spectrum who were acknowledging the fact that, yes, okay, they might quibble with all sorts of little things, but generally speaking, what we did was to show that historical criticism was already a permanent fixture by the mid-1700s. This is not the point at which it is originating. This is the point where it is now dominating. And so uh, we build upon the work of many other scholars, not just Cardinal Ratzer, in fact, not primarily him. We wanted to kind of lay the foundation to show that what he was demonstrating actually was far truer than he had the time or space to indicate in that brief lecture. And so one other thing that I think you know about is that um, when Dr. Weicker and I worked on politicizing the Bible, we were already discussing how can we simplify, how can we summarize, how can we synthesize this so that a highly motivated lay readership can understand the decline and fall of sacred scripture is the result of that process, distilling, summarizing, synthesizing this big tome. But Dr. Jeff Morrow had also been working with us. And uh, Jeff and I have been close friends for 20 plus years. And so several months ago, we published a sequel to The Big Boy. It's called Modern Biblical Criticism as a Tool of Statecraft, 1700 to 1900, to basically bring it up to date, at least within the last 200 years leading into the 20th century. And this is a much more detailed analysis not of philosophers so much as biblical scholars, professional exegetes, well-known uh, Old and New Testament figures, Valhausen and Gunkel, and a number of others as well. So 
you know, the last thing I would say, and I apologize for going on so long, you know, there is a sense in which we want to have a combination. You know, what we want to emphasize in teaching and in uh, catechesis is how do we read the Bible from the heart of the church? How can we read sacred scripture within the sacred tradition? And this is always about reading the new concealed in the old and the old revealed and fulfilled in the new, but also discovering that the home, the natural habitat for sacred scripture is the sacred liturgy as a matter of historical fact. You and I have talked about this many times in the past, that the New Testament was a sacrament before it became a document, according to the document. The only thing Jesus calls the New Testament is the blessed sacrament. He says, do this in remembrance, not write this. And so once you connect the old and the new, once you connect sacred scripture with sacred liturgy, then you're already doing the proper form of a historical study of scripture, reading it in its context, reading in its literary context, its historical context, but also it's ecclesiastical, it's liturgical, it's sacramental, it's Eucharistic setting, because this is where the book emerged. This is what the book was written for. And the book itself illuminates what is going on when the Eucharist is celebrated, because Christ himself is the New Testament, and the Eucharist is Christ. And so that is the main point. We want to major on the majors, and yet you can't simply have a good offense without a defense. And so what we want to do is to work, we've worked on this the last 15 years. Why isn't this out there? You know, why is it that we have been hosting priest conferences since 2005, and every year we end up with a waiting list or priests who wanted to come but couldn't make it. And at the end of this week-long event, invariably the priests say, I went to Catholic grade school. I went to Catholic college. I went to Catholic seminary. How come we never learned to read sacred scripture this way? I mean, this is what we signed up for. And yet this is not what we got. You know, it's historical criticism. It's more like looking at your bride by examining her x-rays, you know, well, there's a proper use for that, but it's very, very limited. And so we want to major on the majors, and that is reading scripture in the tradition, but at the same time, answer the question, why is this so rare? Why is this seemingly so difficult when it's truly natural, or at least supernaturally natural, if you approach scripture with faith, the way the writers of scripture would invite us to do? And, you know, again, I think it gets back to the most basic interpretive principle is reading a text on its own terms. And that's what we're doing. And at the same time, explaining why sacred scripture became secular and why it's just become the Bible. In fact, I have a book here written by a former Calvinist. Uh, we quote him a fair bit. He's become Orthodox. Michael Legospi, The Death of Scripture and the Rise of Biblical Studies where he shows that this is what happens. It ceases to be an heirloom within the church, sacred scripture. It becomes just a book out there for elite specialists, intellectuals, professors in a university setting. And in the process, you end up, you know, and historical critical scholars will agree that there isn't a single verse that we have achieved interpretive consensus as a result of this so-called scientific approach. Well, that should come as no surprise for people who know how to read sacred scripture on its own terms. Everything you're saying there, um, it's just, it makes so much sense for me. Uh, and, and I know maybe for the, the average layperson is probably wondering all these names and this history, what is going on, probably with a bit of a, an introduction to see the impact of the teaching, the authorities in our church over the, over centuries. Uh, and we as a generation of Catholics are, are hearing homilies or or other other talks or, or teachings that are influenced through this uh, this type of uh, politicizing of the Bible or, or looking at the the Bible as a secular book. I had firsthand experience, and this is probably this will now hopefully make it real for people. When I remember uh, being in the seminary, and I remember the very first uh, introduction of the Bible class, it was an ex nun. I won't say her name, but uh, she she basically um, right away uh, said that the the bible is not to be taken literally it's a it's it's supposed to be interpreted and then very quickly went into uh the the big rocks if you like you know creation story the flood uh crossing of the red sea all these sort of supernatural events that she she picked out 
and then explained them away and just said, look, it's very unlikely that any of these things happened. And it got to the point where the very foundations of my understanding of the Bible were being ripped out before <laughs> below me. And, and I remember, um, you know, when he got up to Jesus, you know, all these, these grand uh, statements of Jesus not knowing that he was God, Jesus not being able to read or write, not being able to read, speak Hebrew, Jesus um, uh, not performing any miracles, basically. Um, and, and by the end of it, you, you, you're scratching your head thinking, so why am I studying the Bible? Why am I even believing in this Jesus, man? Uh, and, what, and I felt at the time... I had more in common with my Protestant brothers and sisters because they at least believed in the supernatural right. than my, these Catholic scholars. Now, what is going on? But you said something earlier, which is interesting. Uh, Martin Luther desacramentalized the scriptures. That's quite powerful because that does explain almost how we got here. That's one of the pieces, of course. But can we comment? I mean, how many of us out there are, uh, have had an experience where these miracle stories of Jesus are explained away uh, we, we focus on the scientific side of it or the history, as you say, the historical view, and we forget about, about its interpretive meaning or its um, the spiritual, uh, the genre that it's meant to be or what the, what the authors are intending to write. And we just try to put our 21st century lens on something that was written for a different purpose. And as there's a lot you've said there, and I, I'm just trying to help people sure. unpack some examples maybe. I've just, I've just sprayed a few, but are there other examples that you can think of that has uh, led to the root of the problem, um, th this preaching of focusing on the human side of Jesus rather than the divine side, and we're forgetting that this is that there is even a God to begin with. I, I think uh, it's quite damaging to your faith. Right. Well, let's take a step back and, and emphasize two or three things. First of all, there is a place for critical reading of Scripture. Sure. The danger is not that you're reading it critically. The danger is that you're using criticism uncritically. Mm. And so you're using something that is apparently natural, but really it's anti-supernatural. Well, that's not natural. That's unnatural. So to weaponize the humanity of Jesus over his divinity isn't like half true. No, you basically are you know, using one thing to deny another, and yet you're subverting the very fact that his humanity is the visible expression of his divinity. And I could multiply examples, but I would say this, I know who that ex-nun is. Her name is Legion, <laughs> for she is many. There are so many, literally thousands of professors who came into religious studies, who came into theology, you know, out of high school or out of some conversion experience. And so they are debunked. They are, you know, basically liberated from that sort of childish nonsense. And let's be honest, some of it is childish nonsense. Mm. Because at the end of the day, we're not talking about reading the Bible literally as much as we're talking about reading the Bible literarily. That is, literal is a fundamentalist kind of habit. That is, it, it, it fails to recognize the use of figures of speech, metaphor, simile, and the figural use of words is so common, not just in the parables, but many other places too. And so St. Thomas Aquinas was no fundamentalist, but he emphasized the need to get the senses literalis, that we might be tempted to translate as the literal sense, but clearly when you look at what he says, he means the literary sense. And so the literary sense has to take into consideration the literary genre as well as figures of speech. Is it apocalyptic? Is it narrative? Is it prophecy? Is it poetry? Et cetera, et cetera. You know, you, you don't read Time Magazine the same way you read Tolstoy's War and Peace. You've got to understand what kind of literature you're reading. But again, after you're done saying all of these things by way of qualification, I would say this, that Protestantism in secularizing scripture, in desacramentalizing our experience of reading it, proclaiming it, contemplating it, has produced something like Jacob and Esau. You know, we usually think of fundamentalism and modernism as two rivals, but what we've got to recognize is that this is a fraternal rivalry, that both of these extremes emerge from Protestantism. Protestantism is, in a certain sense, bipolar. On the one hand, it is desacramentalizing. On the other hand, it is also proof texting. And so the fundamentalists take one side of Luther's sola fide, 
Sola Scriptura, and says, the, the Holy Spirit is telling me what this means. Okay, but be careful because, you know, you're interpreting it literalistically. On the other hand, this tendency to de-sacramentalize, to de-supernaturalize, is picked up by the other twin brother of Protestantism and used to basically debunk, to de-supernaturalize, to prove that miracles didn't really happen, that prophecy is not genuine, et cetera, et cetera. And this is true, especially in the Gospels, but you know, for at least two centuries prior to it being applied to the Gospels, this was applied to the Pentateuch, as well as to the historical books. And so it wasn't a miracle uh, that Israel crosses the Red Sea. You know, I remember Father Benedict Rochelle quipping rather cynically. I guess that the miracle was, then if it's just a sea of reeds, how did the entire Egyptian army with all of the horses and chariots drowned and die there, you know, but you can, you get this sense that there is an attempt to naturalize these events. And what you've got to do is press pause and say, look, are you reading the text on its own terms? That is, did the evangelist really mean to say that the 5,000 were fed because everybody began to share by pulling out the food that they had been hiding all along? Is that in the text or is that explaining the text away? Because ultimately, exegesis is trying to explain the text on its own terms, whether it's the multiplication of the loaves or the multiplication of the manna following the exodus from Egypt for all 12 tribes of Israel. But it's a kind of common outlook, whether you're applying it to the Old Testament or to the New, that the only way to take this seriously is basically either to de-supernaturalize it or to level it and make it a pool of proof texts so that we basically have weaponized scripture to back up our fundamental beliefs. And, you know, there's something that is valid about the modernist side looking at the historical, the human, the past events, and then they absolutize that. And there's also something about the fundamentalists who say, but sacred scripture, in fact, is the source of our faith. And so we ought to be able to read it in order to show where our beliefs emerge with this supernatural certainty. You know, but again, you're looking at Jacob and Esau, two rivals, you know, and at the end of the day, neither one is the Isaac of Catholicism, you know, and I would say that the, the marriage of faith and reason, the natural and the supernatural, the philosophy and theology, this was what was known as the medieval synthesis. This is what is called the perennial philosophy. This is what is called Catholic wisdom. And this is what we almost lost, you know, by the 1970s and 80s in the aftermath of Vatican II, although much of this predates Vatican II by a decade or three, you know, what ended up happening was in almost every seminary, even the seminaries that were getting dogma back on track and moral theology back on track, Biblical scholarship was basically still aligned with what you would identify as liberal Protestantism and historical criticism, and nobody was really being trained to read the scripture in the tradition, and at the same time to integrate the philosophical, the historical, and the scientific. And so, you know, this is basically what the St. Paul Center is all about, reading scripture from the heart of the church, you know, biblical literacy for the laity, biblical fluency for the clergy, but beginner, intermediate, advanced, recognizing that the Bible is a liturgical document, that the sacraments that constitute our liturgy are scriptural realities, and so to marry the human and the divine, the literary and the historical, as well as the theological and the spiritual, again, this is not only spiritually more satisfying, Charvel, what we want to show is that this is actually scientifically superior. Because when you test a scientific hypothesis, it basically hangs on its explanatory power. And I would say that the explanatory power of this liturgical hermeneutic for reading scripture sacramentally ends up exerting a far greater explanatory power than any other interpretive approach. So that when we're reading Genesis 1 and 2, the creation account, you're allowed to believe in six literal 24-hour days. You're not allowed to impose that as though that is an absolute article of faith. Mm. But many of the fathers in medievals believed in six literal 24-hour days. But I think the, 
the the more hmm, the more profound reading of it on its own terms is to, is to see that look god creates the world in six days in order to consecrate it on the seventh day that's the goal that's the teleology the seventh day is the sabbath the sabbath is the sign of a covenant and so god is revealing the fact that the cosmos is in effect the heavens and the earth that are full of the glory of god much like the temple in jerusalem is full of the glory of god and so there's an analogy implied between the creation of the cosmos as a cosmic temple and the construction of the temple as a microcosmos, so that Solomon, as you know, basically rushes to finish the construction of the Jerusalem temple in seven years, when it would ordinarily take 40 or 50, in time to consecrate it in the seventh month. And at what point? In the seventh and final liturgical feast that happens in the seventh month, in the seventh year, and how long is the Feast of Tabernacles? Seven days. So on the seventh day of the seventh feast in the seventh month of the seventh year, Solomon, the king of Israel, but also the first man to be called the son of God in the uh, Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament, he is imitating his father by building this temple as a miniature cosmos to show a response of faith. And when you go back and you read creation that way, you see it not through a telescope, not through a microscope, you see it through the eyes of faith. You begin to recognize a liturgical cosmology that shows that the cosmos is full of the glory of God because it's a cosmic temple, Genesis 1. Genesis 2 shows the Garden of Eden described in terms of the sanctuary. So that Adam isn't just the first human, he's the high priest of humanity, and what the forbidden fruit is to Adam in Genesis, the golden calf is to Aaron in Exodus, and that's why they're excluded from God's presence, kicked out of the Holy of Holies. Two guardian cherubim are posted by the entrance of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. There are two cherubim, only one place in all of Israel, and that is in the Holy of Holies in the sanctuary of the Jerusalem temple. And so reading this literarily, historically, but above all, theologically, and not just for doctrinal proof texts, but to have a liturgical cosmology, to have a liturgical anthropology, to see that we're made for many things, but the greatest thing of all is homo liturgicus. We are made to worship. The greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the greatest expression of love for God is worship through sacrifice. And so I don't want to kill two birds with one stone. I want to kill 200. You know? I want to basically set into motion so many dominoes that people are going to look and say, well, yes, I mean, this just is more spiritually satisfying, but it's also scientifically superior because it exerts this explanatory power that makes just deeper sense out of scripture, creation, and all of these other controversial texts, which have been reduced to either a fundamentalist or a historical critical, almost a hysterically critical approach. The last thought is this, we're becoming aware of the fact of the influence of this hermeneutic of suspicion. Uh, Marxism is the fullest fruit of this. But now throughout the Western world, we're hearing about critical race theory, critical gender theory, and how there is no objective truth that pertains to an objective nature that binds us. And so we deconstruct all of this. And this is postmodernism. Well, in a certain sense, postmodernism is just modernism on steroids. It's the Via Moderna but the Via Moderna goes all the way back to the 13 and 1400s. This idea of debunking, this idea of, of de-supernaturalizing, uh, make no mistake about it. There are two entirely different narratives in competition right now. One would have us read scripture from the heart of the church. The other so-called progressive narrative would read scripture as a Bible, as a book, as part of the Western canon, all of these books written by dead white men, and we are to basically deconstruct them for the purpose of liberating people from all of these constraints and bonds. And so this critical theory didn't start with Marx. It didn't start with the Frankfurt School, Adorno, Habermas, Reich, and others. It really starts with the Via Moderna in the 13 and 1400s. These academics, these intellectuals out to secularize Europe, called themselves the Moderni, the Occamisti. They were very much aware of the fact that they were reading scriptures so as to secularize society 
and they consider this progress. So this progressive narrative that identifies progress with secularism is sort of the air you breathe. And even if you want to be a faithful Catholic, it's almost as though you need a water purifier because it's the water we drink as well. To think the way Aquinas and Bonaventure thought in the 1260s and the 1270s when they were teaching scripture and theology at the University of Paris, back then it was the air they breathed. Now you almost have to kind of detoxify. You, you, have, to, you have to get a lot of stuff out of your system. And once you do, you're like, you know, if traditional Catholic faith is going to be more than traditionalism, it's not enough just to recapture the liturgy and the sacraments and recognize that 2,000 years of antiquity make this, this mass ever ancient and ever new. But, you know, to relegate scripture to the Biblicists or to the Protestants, you know, it's like you're never going to have an integral tradition until you reintegrate sacred scripture with the sacred liturgy and realize that scripture, the Old Testament and the New, are the lenses through which we see the world sacramentally. That's almost verbatim out of St. Bonaventure. Yeah, wow. That's powerful. We need to rediscover that. Uh, absolutely. Um, that's beautifully put. Thank you very much uh, for doing oh, that. Um, sure. <laughs> uh, um, so, so just, just it might be a, a good time as we um, as we get to the point of here. The, the Bible isn't then uh, a secular book. What is the Bible? If we want to tell someone, um, how are we to? You said literarily. I know there are. We understand there are there are different ways uh, of of interpreting the Bible. It's all, I know this is um, uh, Scripture Studies 101, but if we can just remind our viewers, Catholics and Protestants and others around, um, how do we see the Bible? There are, there are a number of ways of interpreting it. You've, you've touched on the historical, but there are others, uh, the spiritual, and then there is a couple of others in there. Could we just sort of um, remind people how, how this all works? You can do this from above in terms of taxonomy. You know, there's Lexio Divina, there's spiritual exegesis, there's liturgical, you know, reading of scripture, there's typology and all of the rest. Uh, there's also the, the timeline or yes. what Jeff Cavins does with the great adventure. All of these are valid. Those are ways that you can classify scripture and the different ways of reading it in terms of taxonomy. I would prefer uh, from the ground up what St. Augustine is doing in responding to the request made by his barber in the 390s, how can I read the Bible? It's daunting, you know? So he writes De Doctrina Christiana. And in chapter three, book three, he, he basically goes through these seven rules. I'm not gonna bother with you the seven rules that would take us a little too far down the road. But the thing that he does that I think we can do is to recognize that scripture is unique in the sense of inspiration. Even if we read Leviticus and it confuses us and it doesn't inspire us, it's inspired, that is divinely authored. If we prefer Thomas Akempis, the imitation of Christ, that might inspire us, but it's not inspired. So what does inspiration literally mean when it applies to scripture alone? It means dual authorship, human, but also divine, not 50-50. It's, like it's like the two natures of the word incarnated. Jesus is fully human as well as fully divine. Scripture is fully human, but it's also fully divine. So whether you're reading parables or prophecy or history or narrative or apocalyptic, you're reading that which is inspired. So what? Well, for Augustine, that makes all of Scripture prophecy. That is, it's God's perspective. Now, we usually think of the Bible as a book that contains prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and that's not wrong. But what 2 Peter 1, verses 19 to 21 is really getting at, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, because Scripture comes as a result of the impulse of the Holy Spirit, what that's indicating is that the literary genre of all of Scripture, whether it's parable, prophecy, historical narrative, apocalyptic, is prophecy. It is giving us God's perspective, and we need to read the Bible on the basis of the same spirit by whom it was inspired, which doesn't just mean a kind of mystical, you know, uh, feely-mealy, oh, I'm going to just ignore the literary, the historical, you know, I'm just going to, you know, play Bible roulette and let the Holy Spirit guide me, you know. Well, I suppose there's a limited place for that, but at the end of the day, what we're really talking about is 
how the body of Christ, not only the physical body back in the first century, but the mystical body in the 21st century is endowed by the Holy Spirit with all of these gifts, including prophecy, as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 14. And as he writes 1 Corinthians 14, he's not just encouraging prophecy, he's exercising it because he's explaining the liturgy in 1 Corinthians 14 in terms of what is not only visibly happening, but what is invisibly happening. You know, so I would gesture towards my book, The Lamb's Supper, which isn't looking at Corinthians so much as it's looking at the apocalypse, but the literal sense of the book of Revelation, the historical truth of the book of Revelation is the theological meaning of the liturgy of the mass that corresponds exactly to the worship of the angels and the saints, the amen, the alleluia, the gloria, the agnus dei, the holy, 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 the songs, the prayers, the sacrifice that they're performing up there is what we are doing down here. There aren't two churches. There aren't two liturgies. There's one. That's the literal, historical, theological sense of the apocalypse. But reading backwards, that's also the sense of the creation narrative, the cosmos as a temple. And as you fast forward through the exodus, the conquest, the whole point of conquering the promised land was not to build a palace for the king, but a temple for the king of kings where the high priest would offer sacrifice. That is the architectural sacrament of the kingdom of God. I wrote a book called The Kingdom of God as Liturgical Empire, a theological commentary on 1 and 2 Corinthians, uh, 1 and 2 Chronicles. And, you know, let's just be honest. And I would say this, that I feel like a child who's discovered a candy store and I can't eat it all, but there are machines that make more candy. And so I want to invite all of my fellow Catholics, all of these ex-Catholics, all of these non-Catholics to come in and the proof of the pudding is in the eating. I mean, taste and see, and this is good. This way of reading scripture enlightens the mind. It explodes the brain, but it ignites the heart. You know, we're not our hearts burning within us as he opened the scriptures, but our eyes are open in the breaking of the Eucharistic bread. I mean, I, I have a feeling, Charbel, that you could practically finish every single one of these sentences because i can see in your eyes you know the fact that you know where i'm going you know what i'm doing because you're going there as well and even if we're on different continents and time zones you know we really are you know uh two brothers and uh kind of like uh siamese teachers <laughs> yeah. thank you. you i mean I, what the reason is i mean i've learned from, from from many of your teachings thanks be to god of the technology we have um, and, and it reminds me of a comment. Uh, we had Dr. Ed Shriat uh, speaking to our principals, uh, over 300 uh, religious coordinators, religion teachers uh, a few years ago. And these are, these are well-trained um, um, professionals. These, they have doctorates, masters in theology and biblical studies. And they, he did a basic one-day salvation history conference. He basically went from Adam to Jesus. And, and at the end of that day, we were getting comments from these um, people with PhDs and masters Expert. saying, look, we've studied all our life. We've never heard this stuff before. Right. And they were excited in their 60s and 70s to, to hear this. And, and, and we understand, wow, we've been deprived as Catholics and, and people for so long from the way to truly read scripture. We've been, as you say, politicizing it or, or secularizing it. And, and, and we really just need to read it with the, with the lens of the church. Yeah. You know, Ted lived with us um, for two years back in 92 and 93, yes. along with Gray and a number of these other guys over the years, I think we've had close to or over 60 men live with us. But, you know, at that time, I remember coming back from England, my first trip, and I gave a series of talks one day to a group of older Catholics in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. And there was one leader named Leo in the front row. And after the first talk, there was Q&A. And he was basically, you know, a little defensive. Being a more traditional Catholic, he said, are you telling me that you need to know the Bible and the timeline and the sequence of covenants in order to become a saint? What about those medieval peasants who only had the gospel in stained glass, but they had their rosaries, they had their prayer, you know, and, and some medieval peasant who couldn't even read, much less own a Bible, you know, and I would say, no, Leo, for sure, you don't need the Bible in order to become a saint. But on the other hand, let me bring forth as our witness that medieval peasant, 
Because if we could bring him into the room right now, I think he would look at me and then look at you and say to you that if you're using me as an excuse for remaining relatively illiterate when it comes to sacred scripture, when you own a Bible, you've got the tools, you could learn it, what I, whereas I couldn't, excuse me, Amen. don't use me in that way, because if I could have, I would have, and you should. And he was like, okay, you, you got me <laughs> on that one. He stayed for the other two talks, told me that he wasn't going to. I came back maybe two or three years later. Not, I'm not sure if I ever told Ted or Tim this, but uh, it might have been four or five years later. And I, I, I came back, and this man was just recently widowed. And Leo was, I asked him, you know, what are you doing to keep busy? <laughs> he said, ever since that visit, I've been reading through the scriptures, also reading the fathers, and leading one, and then two, and now three Bible studies a week. And he was in his late 70s. You know, so don't tell me you can't wow. teach an old dog new tricks. You know, ever ancient, ever new. That's what this approach to scripture really is. And it electrifies our experience of the sacred mysteries that we call the seven sacraments as well. Amen. And it leads me, I guess, just to the final wrap up here, final thought. Um, I mean, just a reminder, we can get this book. Uh, this is available, uh, The Decline and Fall of Sacred Scripture, How, to, How the Bible Became a Secular Book. It is available on our website now, uh, perusiamedia.com, uh, across all good bookstores. St. Paul Center, of course, please go there. The Emmaus Road uh, website, um, and EWTN, of course, are promoting it, and, and we thank them for their partnership. But a final thought, Dr. Hahn, um, just, uh, and you sort of are touching on it, it the excitement. Uh, it's never too late to learn the, the scriptures, but could you maybe give us one final thought here as we close for this podcast? <laughs> one final thought. Okay, Lord, help me. Um, <laughs> I would start off by saying every day I wake up and I feel that I feel like the donkey that Jesus rides into Jerusalem, you know, and at times I suspect that he was tempted to think that they were applauding for him and what a great job he was doing of carrying the Lord of Lords, when in fact, they were probably not even noticing him. Um, we all get to carry the word incarnate. We all get to bear the word that is inspired. And so what a joy. And it, it isn't necessary to compare ourselves to other people. What's necessary is to not compare ourselves to other people, but just look to the Lord and, and realize that what we do is for an audience of one. It is for the glory of God. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. It's more than just a passage from Psalm 115. It is the way of living, and it's a way of reading scripture. It's a way of teaching doctrine, and it's the only safe way, eschatologically speaking. And so, you know, become, grow up in your understanding, but become more and more childlike, not childish, you know, not coming up with excuses for remaining relatively illiterate. No, the mass is the only thing that we're going to have to do every week of our lives throughout our lifetime. And the scripture is the only book that will have to be read in every single mass. And invariably, it almost always is the old and the new. So discover how the new is concealed in the old and the old is revealed in the new and never expect to reach this point of professional expertise because I've been doing it. I'm 60, about to turn 64 in two weeks. And so I've been doing this since I was 14, literally 50 years. And all I become aware of is how much more I don't know, but how much fun it is to learn whatever there is around the next turn. And so as we grow in holiness and as we grow in wisdom, learn from Socrates because he knew his limits and, and he was not concerned about proving how much he knew but simply pursuing how much he longed to know more. And if we can stay like that, we are going to be hungry children for now and holy saints someday. Amen. Amen. Thank, I couldn't say it better. Thank you very much. Um, God bless you. And, and I invite everyone to please go visit the St. Paul Center website. Some free articles. There's even, uh, I mean, free studies on there. You've got all the resources and all these uh, videos. You can even sign up to the commentaries on the Bible. Uh, the, the weekly uh, readings from the mass. It's just, this is a wealth of uh, resources. Um, and also there's a fundraiser. You have a, a dinner and you have our very own Cardinal Pell. Uh, yes. uh, is it coming to your fundraiser? Is there any, is it too late for people to sign up there? Is there any way people can support St. Paul Center? Well, you can sign up to attend in Orlando, Florida on October 28th, Thursday night, the feast of, of St. Simon and Jude and also my 64th birthday. 
Cardinal Pell has been disallowed by the State Department from arriving here. So he's given us a video. He'll be virtually present. He will be allowed in about a month later. And so we're going to have a reception for him near the end of November. Uh, right. Instead, we have Jonathan Rumi as a substitute. He's become a good friend. He plays Jesus in this amazing series called The Chosen. He's a daily communicant with a deep devotion to Our Lady, the only Catholic, I think, you know, out of all the 12 apostles and the ladies and all of that. Uh, we already have about 400 people signed up. There is room for more in person, but there's right. also going to be a virtual attendance. And so feel free to go online and register to uh, participate virtually in this 20th anniversary gala banquet. It's really going to be an exciting time. And uh, I'm just so grateful because, um, well, two reasons. Number one, because, you know, we, we've gotten to do this for 20 years and you've gotten yeah. to be really a participant with us, a partner. On the other hand, we feel as though, you know, just because I haven't made it to Australia doesn't mean I'm not there because I feel like I am in spirit in Charbel. <laughs> and so, you know, in some ways you're a younger and better and more understandable version of me. And you've also got co-workers too. I'm not flattering you. I'm just giving glory to God because yes. I never saw this coming. And so I just want to say, keep up the great work. Thanks be to God for all that you're doing and for all of your co-workers. And I want to invite every single person who has been attending this or who is going to be viewing it later to really feel invited to become a co-worker, a participant yourself. This is not a spectator sport up in the stands of a stadium. You know, come down to the field and, and get dirty playing this because it's an exciting, but also a very, very important task. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. God bless you and all your work. And, and, and God only knows the fruits of, of how far it's gone. Um, thanks to all the great apostles born out of many of these people influenced by your teachings. And, and of course, it's God, all glory to God at the end of the day. Thank you again, Dr. Scott Hahn. And have keep a us in your prayers. Please absolutely. Keep us We're praying prayers. for you. Please pray for us. That is we'll Dr. Do. Scott Hahn. And that's another Perusia podcast. Uh, God bless you. Until next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Perusia podcast. If you've enjoyed these podcasts, please share with your family and friends. And for more information about everything Perusia, please visit our website at perusiamedia.com.